Hello, and welcome to GradCast, the official radio show and podcast of the Society of Graduate Students at Western University. I'm your host, Elizabeth Moeller. And I'm your co-host, Vicki Telios. And we're fortunate enough to be joined today by... Monica Molinero. <laughs> Thanks for joining us, Monica. Hi, and welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. You are very welcome. Really excited to talk to you today, Monica. Wondering, just to kick us off, if you'd mind telling us a little bit about yourself, your background, your research, and all that good stuff. Sure. Um, so to start, I'm a PhD candidate in the health promotion stream of the Health and Rehabilitation Sciences program. My dissertation research examines the caregiving narratives of pediatric oncology nurses um, with a specific focus on caregiving, what they conceptualize as caregiving, what meanings caregiving takes up, and also within that, doing an underlining examination of moral distress in their narratives as well. Um, so I'm a qualitative researcher. I've always been a qualitative health researcher. So this study I'm really excited about and I'm excited to talk about it today. That's fantastic. You know, Monica, there's a, there's a couple of terms that I might know myself and, and maybe Vicki knows as well, but perhaps other people don't know. So can you just kind of unpack a little bit, very briefly, what, what, what is qualitative research? I love that you use the phrase, can you unpack this? Because that's such a qualitative thing to say. <laughs> So, yes. <laughs> um, so to unpack it, so if we talk about qualitative research as a whole, qualitative research is an umbrella term for a bunch of methods and methodologies that usually specifically use words as forms of data instead of quantitative health research or quantitative research, which is based on statistics and numbers. So within qualitative research, there's multiple methodologies that you can use. The methodology that I'm using for my study specifically is a critical narrative methodology, which means that it's a methodology focused on stories and storytelling. So it's about not only what my participants are saying in their story, but it's also about how they story their experiences and how they talk about their experiences. So there's multiple modes of analysis that are involved when you do narrative work. So, Monica, how does that type of narrative differ from other qualitative research within your field? So, um, I'm trying to think of the qualitative research that I know, and there, a lot of people use surveys and predetermined questions. So, how does the research that you, um, the method that you use, how does that compare to other types of um, methods in your field? Right. So when you think about things like surveys or predetermined questions, oftentimes things like surveys that have a qualitative component are known within this faction of pragmatic qualitative research. So usually or mixed methods qualitative research or research. And by that, I mean types of research where you're typically quantitative researchers or you're exploring something quantitatively, but you want to have a qualitative component involved in that research. And so maybe you administer some qualitative questions in a survey or you have a qualitative survey involved. Other qualitative methods or methodologies within this qualitative umbrella include things like grounded theory, where you're aiming to develop a theory. And a lot of the times when you ask interview questions in grounded theory, those questions are how questions. How did you end up doing this? How did you end up here? Because having those kinds of responses to your questions lead to the development of a theory. There's also research known as phenomenological research, which is about distilling 
an experience down to its essence. So it could be the experience of, as an example, women living with MS. And you want to distill it down to its essence. So you look at how people are talking about how maybe they embody their experience, how they live their experience in the physical world or something of the sort, and that's what you distill it down to. You examine it for that specific aspect of the experience. Um, there's also PAR research, which is called participatory action research, which is where you are doing work with a specific group of people. And usually you ask those people, like there's usually a dynamic there's a researcher participant type of dynamic that happens when you do research whereas par the aim is that you're all co-collaborators together and you're all working on the research together so you're making sure that whoever's involved as a participant is actively involved as a researcher as well and that kind of research usually happens within populations that are maybe either understudied considered marginalized or um, needs more representation in research so that these individuals, um, you're able to co-collaborate with everyone that's involved. So those are just a couple examples of different types of qualitative research methods and methodologies. Um, and yeah, narrative is just the one that I really was interested in trying to do. And yeah, so narrative specifically is involved with storytelling, which I find really fun because everyone can relate to stories. Everyone can tell stories. Everyone can listen to stories. It's kind of a uniting factor among everyone. So it's been really interesting treating it as a specific methodological thing, really, to study. That's really interesting. And one of the things that I love about qualitative research is, is it really allows for you as the researcher to position yourself and bring your, your own story and your own narrative into the research. Would you mind sharing what inspired you or what made you decide that this was a topic you wanted to pursue for research interest? Sure. So um, I myself am not someone that had cancer as a child or was affected personally by pediatric cancer. This all started back when I was in undergrad, actually. Um, I went to McMaster and I used to volunteer at the Ronald McDonald House there at McMaster. And they have a room that's known as the family room within the children's hospital. And the point of the family room is it's a volunteer run room um, and it's funded completely by donations where families that are living in the hospital or living at Ronald McDonald House are able to go to that room and able to get coffee, have a snack, watch some TV, get their laundry done. The room, the point of the room is that it's supposed to act as some sort of respite for these families. And as a volunteer in that room, I was the one that was responsible for making them coffee, making them their snacks, doing their laundry, or just being that sounding board if they needed to vent. Um, and what had happened was one night I was working a shift there and a little girl and her mom came in and this girl was, I think she was five at the time. Um, she had been in the hospital for about six weeks at this point. When she came in, so she had her IV hooked up to her, so she was holding onto her IV pole with her mom, completely bald. She had a huge scar running all the way around her skull um, because she had a brain tumor that needed to be removed. And they had taken a skin graft from her hip to replace some of the skin on her skull that had been removed. And I didn't think anything of it. I started talking to her. I got her set up to watch TV. I had to be careful once again because she had a couple of incisions that we just need to be aware of. Plopped her down on the TV. We started talking about, she was wearing this really pink sparkly robe and she was talking about how she got that from someone as a gift. It was really cute. So we sat down, we watched TV. I got her a snack. She just started telling me things. 
Um, and I turned around and her mom was staring at me like fully bawling. And I didn't know why. Like at first I got so scared because I was like, oh my God, like, did I accidentally hurt an incision? Did I hurt her? Like, I don't know what happened. Um, and the mom, you know, she's crying and she says, thank you. And then I get confused and I don't know why she's thanking me. And she goes on to say, you know, we've been in this hospital for six weeks now and you're the first non-family member that she's spoken to. She won't speak to anybody here. She won't speak to her doctor. She won't speak to her nurses. She won't speak to any of the staff. Like you're the first person I've seen her spoke, like speak to that isn't me or my husband or one of our family members. And so then I started crying. I think I spent the rest of my shift crying. I went home, cried, just cried nonstop for then on. Um, and then from there, when I thought about pursuing my master's, I was like, well, you know, that's really interesting. I can't believe that I had that sort of effect on this mom and this little family unit. And I think I want to understand the intricacies of what it's like to be a kid with cancer and what it's like to care for a kid with cancer a little bit more. And that's how I ended up going through my master's and my master's project was on young adult survivors. So individuals in their twenties of pediatric cancer and who they deemed to be their primary support person. And so I did a study on that and then that led to my PhD where now I'm looking at the nurses that took care of them while they were there. And Monica, you sort of mentioned it before with your story of how you became so passionate about your research. Um, how do you think the way that you interact with your participants for your, for your research topics, how do you think they react to you um, when you ask them all these questions? Are these questions that, you know, uh, your participants have heard before? Are they new to them? Is it, does it invoke a sort of reflection within them? So can you tell us a little bit more about, about your reaction with your, the interaction with your patients? Sure. So the participants I have, I'm very lucky. I have a very forthcoming group of participants. So in terms of them talking about their stories or sharing their experiences with me, that's never been an issue at all. Um, so in talking about the experiences, one of the beauties of narrative research, at least for me, is that I hate the sound of my own voice. And so I don't need to talk very much when it comes to narrative research, because the point is to elicit the stories from your participants. So what'll happen is I will ask a question and it's usually very open-ended and that's done purposefully because you want to see where your participant goes in the story that they're telling you. So I'll ask an open-ended question and then from there they take it anywhere they want. And you know, there's a variety of reactions that happen in the course of an interview, not only just a narrative interview, but any sort of qualitative interview where you might be talking about something that has some underlying emotion involved in that. So in the interviews that I've done, you know, not only with my participants, but just in general, there's been instances of laughing. I've met participants' pets before. I've met children. I've had them cry. I've cried with them. There's a lot of time where emotions just get brought to the forefront, and that's totally okay. That's part of the research. It's important to understand what makes people emotional, what makes me emotional, and that almost helps establish a bit more rapport or a bit more of a relationship with them to continue talking about their experiences if they feel comfortable. You know, that's, that's really interesting. How do, you, how do you work with participants uh, to, to make them feel comfortable sharing a journey or an experience that can be pretty, I'm sure, pretty difficult to talk about? And, and especially given that perhaps this is the first time they may have met you, um, what are some strategies that you use? Mm -hmm. 
I do think it's important first and foremost to never just treat it as I'm the researcher and you're the participant and kind of dive right into the interview or dive into whatever you're planning on doing as soon as you meet them. I do think it's important to take time before any interview or any interaction to talk to them and make sure that they have the opportunity to voice any concerns, ask any questions, or tell you just how they're feeling that day because sometimes you're just gonna have a day where something's booked and maybe things just go wrong the entire time up into that interview, or you just have a bad day leading up into that interview. And that's not a problem. It's just being aware of those things that happen. And so for me, it's always important instead of just diving straight into the interview, it's always asking, you know, how are you feeling today? What's going on? And establishing some sort of relationship with anyone that I'm talking to and just making sure that you're open and available to answer any questions that they have. I think that's the most important part. It's tricky and it takes time. Like qualitative interviewing, I truly feel is an art form. And I think that it takes time to understand what works with your participants and what works for you as well. So even though I have a distinct approach to things, that might not necessarily work for somebody else. But regardless, I think it's important that you establish a level of trust and a relationship with your participants before just diving into any sort of data collection from them. Um, so Monica, you've been on the show previously, I want to say around a year ago, year and a half ago. Um, so from then till now, what differences have you seen in your research? If there are differences, has there been any growth? Um, what stage are you at right now in terms of your data collection and your, um, and your progress with your, your interviews? Mm. So when I was first on the podcast, I was actually still in the brainstorming stage of what exactly my dissertation was going to look like. And so quite a bit has happened in that period of time. The last time I was interviewed, I was still brainstorming whether or not I wanted to have pediatric oncologists and nurses involved in my study. Since then, the decision has been made that I'm only looking at the experiences of pediatric oncology nurses. You know, I've written and defended my proposal. I've submitted ethics, got ethics approved. And right now I'm on the tail end of my data collection. I'm almost done. So with the methodology that I'm using, uh, data collection involves two sets of interviews with all your participants. So another facet of qualitative research in general is that usually sample size is something that gets highly contested depending on who you're talking to. When it comes to narrative research, sample sizes are usually a lot smaller than what you would consider for the average study. So in my study, as an example, I have nine participants, and that is all I'm including for my study. But that's because the data that you get from these participants is incredibly rich, especially when you're talking about story elicitation. So as an example, for me, the average interview has taken roughly about two hours, and that's about 35 pages of a transcript once you've transcribed that all. And then you go through, analyze, and what happens is after that first round of interviews, once you go through those transcripts, you devise questions for your second interview to ask them after the fact. So you're iteratively doing your data collection and analysis at the same time. Um, so right now I'm in my second round of interviews with my participants. I have done the majority of the interviews with them. And so that's been an interesting experience. I had my longest interview ever, like a couple of weeks ago, and it was about three and a half hours. Wow. Um, yeah, it was a long interview. And the nature of narrative interviewing requires you to be very actively listening the entire time. So it's a little bit tiring, but 
It was a really great interview and I just finished transcribing it this morning. And by transcribing it, I mean, I take the audio file and I type the entire interview out verbatim and I'm doing that by myself. I'm not using a software or anything of the sort, that's all me. So I finally finished transcribing it this morning and it was 45 pages. <laughs> now what is your, that's a really interesting comment you just made uh, that you have chosen to type out the entire interview yourself rather than relying on software or hiring a transcriptionist. What was your rationale for that? Partially or maybe major, majority wise cost. Um, but also when it comes to research like narrative research where you're so iteratively involved and you're trying to co-construct these narratives with your participants, I think it's really important that you are doing that transcription yourself because that transcription acts as another mode of data analysis. In that time, you're able to sit and reflect on what was said during the interview and pick up on some context or nuances that were acknowledged that maybe you didn't notice in the moment because you were focusing on something else. So whether it's emotional reactions or certain phrases that are used or certain sayings that are used, Transcribing is the time where you're able to sit and reflect on those things and make note of those things for future analysis moving forward. So that's the big reason why I would do it. Cost also a factor, but it really, really helps analysis wise. So Monica, describe something to me because I am not a qualitative researcher. I'm a quantitative researcher and I think your methods are fascinating. Um, so you described two interviews, an initial interview where you I'm assuming sort of gauge what is going on with the participant. And then do you take certain themes from the first interview and bring it forward to the second interview? And if that's the case, what sort of themes do you pick up, especially within your research? Okay. So the way it works, at least in regard to my research, is the first interview, for me at least, consisted of about five questions with maybe a couple of sub-questions involved in there. And the point of that first round of questions is to elicit storytelling. It is simply for your participants to be able to tell you their story uninterrupted and let them go from there. So in my first interview, as an example, I asked questions like, what is it like to be a pediatric oncology nurse? Can you tell me your story about caring for kids with cancer? Have you ever had an experience where you weren't able to provide the care that you wanted to care? And those are just some examples that I asked everyone in the first interview. So from there, you also, as they're telling their story, it's not like you just move on to the next question. You'll find that as they tell their story, there's instances or phrases or words that they use that you pick up on that enter into another mode of storytelling that you want to go into. So essentially, you'll pick up on something that they say. Like as an example, a participant of mine referred to pediatric oncology as a general mess. And so when they finished talking, I went back and said, you know, you described pediatric oncology as a narrative mess or as a general mess. What does that mean? And that ended up creating a whole new storyline that you're able to explore. So every time you ask a question, you have to sit there and you have to actively listen to what they're narrating to you because there's multiple storylines that are laden within that. So that was the first interview. From there, you transcribe it, you look over the transcript, you make your notes, and you also compare with other transcripts. But you also need to understand that what one participant says to you isn't exactly necessarily what another participant is going to say to you either. So the way my second interview transcripts work is my first round of questions is about their first transcript in general, where my participant and I can talk about their first transcript and just see what they thought of the transcript, what they thought of the first interview in general. 
From there, I ask them questions that I have from their first interview. So these are really context specific to each participant. So if they mentioned something specific that maybe I wish I had asked them a little bit more about, or I wish that they had gone into a little bit more detail about, that's my opportunity for me to ask them those questions. So that's how the second interview starts. From there, after going through all of the interviews from the first round of interviews, I was able to see some common storylines that were emerging. So um, as examples, um, nurses use the phrase, you know, I can't be the nurse that I want to be. And laden within that is actually experiences of moral distress. Um, so moral distress is when someone knows the right thing to do, but there's institutional factors or constraints that don't let them do what is right to do. So in using the phrase, I can't be the nurse that I want to be, those moral distress experiences are laden in that. So one of the questions that I would use in my second interview is, you know, a story that I've heard throughout the interviews is that nurses feel as though they can't be the nurse that they want to be. Is this something that resonates with your experience? And that opens up another line of storytelling again, where once again, they're narrating something to you and there's probably factors within that that you can pick up on as well. Um, there were other things, institutional demands or work demands like high turnover, understaffing, heavy workload, little things like that that were pretty common amongst the storylines where you ask each, your, each of your participants whether or not it resonated with their experience, why or why not, and then go into that as well. And that way you can see, is this something that resonates with everyone? Is this something that only resonates with a certain subset of my participants? What is this experience like for that subset or for everyone that's involved? So that's typically, at least for me, that is how the second interviews have gone. Okay. It sounds, uh, it sounds to me like it, there's a lot of, I'm sure, emotional, um, almost labor in, in hearing these stories and in being able to sort of unpack that and, and position yourself within that, but also be able to step back. Have you had any experience around just sort of being able to work with your data and of course become immersed in your data, but also at the same time needing to step back because the stories are quite heavy, like you've said? Yes. So that is something that I experienced in my master's and did also experience or am experiencing currently in my dissertation work. And at first I didn't understand what it was. I didn't understand why I was so tired or I felt so emotional after my interviews or there were certain interviews, I can think of one specifically in the current group of participants that I have where after that interview, I spent the rest of the day thinking about that participant and specifically thinking about one story that they had told me in their interview and I couldn't get it out of my head. And it was partially because the language that was used when they were describing the story was jarring to me in listening to it. And so there are times where, yes, it becomes difficult. There's a term called vicarious trauma where someone is sharing traumas that they've experienced with you and you feel secondary effects of that. And that is what I have experienced in working with my participants. And so for me, what's been important is that 
if I'm doing an interview with someone, I do make sure to take the rest of the day off. I try to make sure that I separate myself from my computer. If I have any sort of feelings about it, I always make sure that I take notes after my interviews, partially as a debrief, but also as a way for me to get any feelings out of there. And also just to make sure that you debrief with your supervisor and discuss if there's anything that was said during the interview that is affecting you in some regard, just make sure you're having an open discussion about it so that it's noted moving forward. So that's kind of how I've been handling it when it happens to me. So in general, I want to talk about the implications of your research, because it seems like this is something that could really be pushed forward into clinical care settings. So how do you think what you're uncovering, because you're sort of like a detective, how you're describing yourself, you know, you're taking all of these terms and you're deducing commonalities between them and trying to find sources and that sort of thing. So how do you think this sort of research affects the general care of um, in pediatric oncology in general? Mm. So to start, I think in general, when speaking about the general public or the average person that maybe doesn't know very much about pediatric oncology, I think this study does serve as a way to kind of break the bubble into understanding what goes on as a pediatric oncology nurse, what that role involves, what involves for them, what kind of emotions are involved or what kind of experiences they have. So I think that's the first thing because I do think that there's a common perception of pediatric oncology in general, that it's very sad, the kids are bald, what can we do? And so even just breaking that mold or understanding that there's so much more to pediatric oncology than what the common perception is, I think that's a great baseline to begin with. Um, from there, I was actually talking to a participant of mine about this the other day in terms of, well, what could be done? You know, and I think what I'm hoping for is that even if this isn't something that's so groundbreaking and like can't cause any institutional change, if it can start a conversation in some regard or have some sort of acknowledgement that these are the experiences of these nurses and this is what they're going through, that is the first step into engaging in some sort of change, whether it's institutionally, whether it's structurally, whether it's societally, there's some way to engage in a conversation. And from there, even if for the junior nurses who are first starting and have no idea what they are getting into when they enter into pediatric oncology, if this acts as a way for them to be able to read these stories or see these stories and understand what the role involves and what else is involved in this role and all the nuances that are underlying all everything that happens as a pediatric oncology nurse, then I think that would be great as well. Are you hoping at any point that you will be able to circle back to your participants either with a, a, a community practice or um, a newsletter something in more plain language and share the results of the study that you're doing mm -hmm. what i'm hoping the idea that i have right now whether or not it'll actually happen i'm not entirely sure yet but the hope that i have right now is to have some sort of town hall both with my participants as well as individuals that i had to waitlist or reject from the study and having all of us to be able to come together and discuss what i've been seeing emerge and what findings have emerged from the study and have a general conversation about it that way everyone is involved everyone can say whether or not it resonates with their experiences and add any additional context that they feel is necessary and that could also act as a way to discover new ways of dissemination as well especially if my participants feel that these findings have particular value in some area it's another way for us to be able to discuss it so that's kind of the dream right now hopefully we can follow through with it but that's what i'm hoping for anyways 
So Monica, we're going to be wrapping up the episode very soon. Um, before we go, can we ask you if you have um, anywhere that we can contact you if anyone wants to learn more about the type of research that you do? Sure. So my email address is mmolina3 at uwo.ca. So that's M-M-O-L-I-N-A-3 at uwo.ca. I also have a personal website. The URL is way too long for me to say out loud here. So I will just include it for the bio for the episode. And as well, anyone can get in contact with me via Twitter. My handle is Monica L. Molinero. So pretty simple. Thank you for being with us today, Monica. This was an excellent episode, very informative. I'm your host, Elizabeth Muller. We were joined today by Vicki Tellerus. Producer was Ariel Frame. And Monica Melanero was our guest today. Thank you for listening to GradCast. If you're interested in listening to us on the radio, you can tune in to CHRW 94.9 FM. If you'd like, you can Use your podcast app of choice and download the GradCast podcast. You can visit our website at www.gradcast.ca or email us gradcastradio at gmail.ca if you'd like to get in touch with us or if you're interested in being on our show. Feel free to check us out on YouTube at GradCast Radio. Thank you for listening and have a good evening.